Okay, I'm going to come to the reading now. This is the, what we're here for this morning is to hear from God. Um, and this is God's word. We're going to read from Luke chapter 18 and reading verses 18 to 30. And it's entitled in the NIV, The Rich and the Kingdom of God. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and your mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard, it is, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the, king, to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then could be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Let's just pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you that uh, it speaks the truth to us so succinctly. I, I pray now for Mark as he comes to, uh, to expound that word to us. I just pray uh, that you'll be with Mark, you'll help him feel at home up here, uh, but more than that, Lord, you can help him speak your words and help us to, uh, to hear directly th from you through what he says this morning. Amen. Thanks, Bill. So a few practical matters first. Um, so the kids have got the right idea. If you want, there's some pictures down at the front of camels. Um, some pencils over here, so if you want to kind of do a picture, that goes for the adults as well. You may want to do that rather than. Um, the second practical matter is uh, this red face. Uh, it's not, according to Kevin, an angelic encounter I had this morning. Um, Sarah and I went to Big Church Day Out yesterday, and we thought the weather was going to be cold, and it, well, actually, God provided a really sunny day, um, and we didn't take our sun cream, so uh, hence the, um, the bright red face. So this is a little bit different for me. I didn't think I would be doing this um, a few years ago. I didn't think I'd be doing this a few months ago. Um, and I'm still not sure it's a great idea. But, um, <laughs> but, but here we are. Um, but truly, it's a real honor and um, privilege for me to be able to stand here and share God's word with you today. So when Nick and I first started talking about getting me up here to deliver a sermon, we obviously talked about what the subject might be. Um, and for those that don't know, I'm in kind of the second year of a four-year theology course and had already written an essay on today's passage. It's become like a friend of mine, I tell you, this passage. Um, and we thought it would make a nice um, one-off sermon, but we also thought it actually fits quite nicely with Nick's current series on, on Christian ethics. Uh, and hopefully you'll see that too. So who am I? Why am I here? Where will I go when I die? These are some of the ultimate questions in life. 
We all ask them. We all think about them. You, me, everyone. We all wonder these things from time to time. And our rich ruler was no different. He wants to know how he can get to heaven. And he's come to the right person for an answer. But let's just back up slightly and take a look at where our passage fits into uh, to Luke's gospel. So what's the context? I think it fits into a, a little section of Luke's gospel that's about how people, different people respond to God's call. So we see the contrasting attitudes of the Pharisee and the tax collector. We can read about the innocent trust of the little children. Then we've got our rich ruler, and we'll come to him. And the section comes to an end, I think, with um, Jesus predicting his death for the third time. And then two stories about people that respond to God's call in the right way. We've got uh, Bartimaeus, our blind beggar. And we've got Zac uh, Zacchaeus, our uh, rich uh, our our tax collector, and interestingly, another rich man. So we're looking today at a section of Luke's gospel that deals with how do you respond to God's call. And I think perhaps take a look at this section in the coming week and just see how all of those stories fit together to really reinforce Luke's message. But for now, let's focus on our rich ruler, sometimes called the parable of the rich young ruler, um, it's the style of a parable. It's a short story, packed full of meaning. But I think it's a narrative. This, this really happened. This is an incident that really took place. And the same story also appears in Mark's account and Matthew's account. So that makes me think it's really important that we understand it. So as a description of something really, that really took place, let's try and form a picture of what's happening. So what are we told? We're told that the person Jesus is speaking to is a ruler. We're told that he's a man. We're told that he's very wealthy. And it's Matthew that tells us that he's young. It's probable that me being a ruler means that he's a leader in the Jewish community of some description, maybe a Pharisee or a synagogue leader. I made the mistake in my essay of saying that um, perhaps it wasn't important that the man was a ruler because neither Mark or Matthew mention it. And my comments back to me were, it was important to Luke, so it's important to you. Lesson learned, I think, that one. Um, perhaps um, we're told that he's a ruler by Luke because we're about to find out that alongside his wealth, his uh, position, his authority, his status in the community were important to him too. In terms of being wealthy, the general assumption at that time is if you were wealthy, then God had blessed you. God had blessed you because you had lived according to the law, and he had given you wealth. Those that knew him certainly would have thought that he had been blessed by God. And the fact that he was young and rich just emphasizes how blessed he was. And by the way, just in case you're sitting there thinking, well, I'm not a ruler and I'm not rich, don't switch off, please. <laughs> um, there's going to be lots of lessons here for all of us. So here we have the scene. Jesus is setting out on the road with his disciples. They're on their final journey towards Jerusalem. A journey that Jesus already knows is going to end with his death. The situation was getting more hostile. He's been harassed and tested by the Jewish leadership for some time now. 
when a man runs up and Mark tells us falls at Jesus' feet. Perhaps he spent time in the crowds listening to Jesus. And he's got an urgent question to ask him. Good teacher, he says to Jesus. Which seems like a solid start, I think. A good and respectful and polite start. I would, I would go with that, I think. But Jesus responds in a slightly unusual way. Why do you call me good? Jesus asks. No one is good except God alone. Now, the various commentators have explained this in kind of different ways. Jesus is saying the address good should be reserved for God only. Because only God was truly good. Now, it's important to note that Jesus isn't saying that he isn't the son of God. Perhaps he was asking the man whether he really knew that he was speaking with God. And perhaps Jesus was also challenging this man's uh, concept of what was good. You see, I think Jesus already knows this man's heart. And the ruler, made, uh, the ruler was making the mistake that most people make today. And that's to compare ourselves to one another. And to our own standards of what good looks like. Good teacher, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's asking a key question in his day and in ours. What's the relationship? What is, what's the relationship between good works, what must I do, and entering heaven, obtaining eternal life? Note the man's assumption that this depends on him doing something. Perhaps the fact he's asking already suggests that he knows something's missing. Something that isn't being satisfied by his wealth and influence. Or maybe he was hoping that Jesus would confirm that all was good. You're doing a great job. But either way, he was going to be disappointed. Jesus initially responds by referring to the Ten Commandments. He says, you know the commandments. However, he only mentions those that are more easily tested by a person's outward behavior. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. If you take them literally, all five can just be ticked off by any regularly moral person. And in fact, that's what happens. All of these I have kept, says the man. Obviously, he hadn't been there to hear Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus explains that the demands of God go much, much deeper than outward obedience. Even if you've refrained from adultery, but you have lust in your heart, you've broken the law. Even if you've never taken a human life, if you've been angry with someone, or you've insulted them, then you've broken the law. So what do we take away from this initial exchange? I think first we need to challenge our understanding of what good looks like. Our concept of good. I could say that my dog is a good dog. I don't mean that the dog has a highly refined sense of ethics or is great at making those really tough moral decisions. No, what I mean is she doesn't bite people. She comes back when she's called. She's housebroken, sort of. Now, what I mean is as dogs go, she's a good dog. And I think we can apply the same to people. What do we mean when we say a person is good? It's not that, I'm not saying they don't bite people or they're not housebroken. Um, what we mean compared to other people, 
their good. Now, many of us would uh, possess what's known as uh, civic virtue. Um, without necessarily being believers, people can make a decision that they're not going to steal. People can make an, uh, a conscious decision that they're not going to sleep with a neighbor's husband or wife. Or they might decide that they're going to give to charity, give to needy causes. And all those things are great in themselves. But God wants us to go further and look into our hearts. God wants everything that we do to be motivated by a heart that loves and seeks to honor and glorify him. In any case, Jesus moves the conversation on and adds a commandment of his own. You still lack one thing, Jesus says. Sell everything you have and give to the poor. Then come follow me and become a disciple. The commands to sell everything and come follow me come together. The act, the selling of the possessions um, and the giving to the poor will mean nothing if he's not also willing to put God first. He needs to be willing to abandon the signs of wealth and put his confidence entirely in Jesus. Jesus meant for this to be far-reaching. Jesus meant for this to be a challenge for this man. It was intended to get to the heart of his spiritual commitment. It was intended to turn his upside, uh, world upside down. However, it becomes clear the man's not willing to listen to Jesus' invitation. In Matthew and Mark's account, he walks away dejected at this point. In Luke, we're told that he's sad but he appears to stick around. Jesus has hit the spot. He has uncovered him. I think the man's sadness is matched by Jesus' sadness. In Mark's gospel, it says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. His wealth and prestige are so important to him that he's unable to put God before it. He's kept the law outwardly, but his heart was not right with God. Jesus then uses a saying that most people then and now would understand. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's hyperbole, but it makes the point. Jesus understands how difficult it is to surrender everything, especially wealth, in order to follow him. But the man's not willing to give up what he has. He had a good, he had a good question. He came to the right person to ask it but he wasn't expecting the answer. He had placed wealth and influence before his love of God, which meant that he wasn't able to totally devote himself to Jesus. His wealth and status had become a substitute God that he wasn't prepared to give up. So it seems that we're challenged again in the same way. This, this story isn't necessarily only one about giving up wealth. God doesn't have a particular problem with rich people Abraham was a very, very wealthy man, but God made a covenant with him. Jesus isn't setting some universal rule about getting into heaven. Jesus is saying, so, you say you've kept the law. Well, how about the first one? You shall have no other gods before me. We need to ask ourselves whether there's anything in our lives which is more important to us than our love of God. Is there anything that gets in our way of our devotion to Jesus? And how willing are we to give these things up? 
So you see, when you give away the things you hold dear, you find the um, be it time, attention, service, or money, you discover that the, the, the person who benefits most is the giver. Jesus promised the man, and he promises us that we'll have treasure in heaven. But this involves a new trust in God, a trust that uh, true wealth is found in following him. So our man who ran up to Jesus walks away dejected. All the treasures of heaven were being offered to him. But what he held dear was more important, was worth more. We're told that he was sad, but that's not strong enough. In the Greek, he was appalled, he was shocked. And the disciples were clearly shocked and surprised by what they heard too. Who then can be saved, they ask. And the question was completely understandable. Remember, to them, wealth was a sign of God's blessing. And if a rich person couldn't enter the kingdom of God, then who could? However, Jesus replies with what's surely one of the greatest truths of the Bible. What's impossible with man is possible with God. Salvation is a work of God, not of man. God saves sinners. We do not save ourselves. And Jesus reminds us that nothing is beyond an all-powerful God. You then get the sense that Peter just wants to check something else. Had he and the other disciples done what was required? We've left all we had to follow you, he says. Well, apart from his fishing boat, for all that fishing he still does, and his house and his wife. But the point's well made. When Jesus called to uh, talk to them to follow him, they dropped everything. They left their fishing nets, they left their tax booths, and they followed. And Jesus assures them, truly I tell you, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. So our rich ruler thought that by having money and by being a good person, He could earn salvation. But he couldn't, and we couldn't either. A camel cannot go through the eye of a needle. And we cannot earn salvation. The only way is through Jesus. Jesus tells us, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the only way. Jesus was trying to get this rich ruler to see the dire condition that he existed in. He was trying to show him the need for a saviour. But he wouldn't listen. God can intervene and save those people who respond to his call. God's mercy and grace are all that is necessary to save. This doesn't just apply to the wealthy, um, as with our passage, but to all of us. Eternal life is not to be found in status, wealth, or obedience to the law, but by humble and welcoming, cross-bearing discipleship. We can't save ourselves. It's impossible. We rely on God's grace alone, since he can do the impossible. And in faith, we take up the cross and become disciples. That process can be painful. It can be difficult. But Jesus is leading us because he cares about us. And he promises an incredible life to those who follow him. So right at the start, I mentioned two people 
who responded to God's call with faith and trust. The blind beggar and Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Okay, so Luke doesn't actually give the blind beggar a name, but I think we can assume it was Bartimaeus. And he knew who Jesus was. Jesus, son of David, he cries out, have mercy on me. He doesn't present a sorry case. He doesn't claim to have been hard done by. He simply says, have mercy on me, son of David. Have mercy on me. And Jesus heals him. And what does he do? He followed Jesus right there and then. He followed. Then we have Zacchaeus. I still picture him sitting in his tree, waiting for Jesus to pass by. And what happens? Jesus calls him down. And Zacchaeus welcomes him. He invites him to his home. He welcomes Jesus into his life. And even though we're not told what was spoken over dinner, Zacchaeus responds there and then. No deliberating. He gives half of what he has to the poor and promises to pay back those he's cheated. He responds. And Jesus says that salvation has come. So it's clear that the story of our rich ruler is about our response to the gospel message. We need to look inside our hearts and ask ourselves, are we doing Christianity with a checklist? I'll come to church or a home group or the church meeting unless something else more important comes up. Or I'm happy to give some of my time and some of my money to the church, but not too much because there's other stuff I want to do. Or I'm going, to be a, I'm going to try to be a good person, but I can't give up this relationship I know is no good for me. Or my career is just going to have to come first. Or do we say, okay, Lord, I'm willing to let you completely reorder my life. Please show me the areas of my life that are not healthy, and please help me put them, one side, put them to one side so I can devote myself to following Jesus. I wonder what happened to our rich ruler. We don't hear about him again. Perhaps he changed his mind later and gave himself to Jesus. Perhaps he was there at the cross a few days later, watching Jesus take his and our sins with him to die. Or perhaps he found out that nothing is more deadly than relying on our own abilities and our own possessions so this week, I ask you, put yourself in the same situation. Come in front of Christ Jesus and ask him, Lord Jesus, is there anything holding me back from fully serving you? What would Jesus say? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the stories that you've given us to teach us. Lord, I just pray that your spirit can help us comprehend, that your spirit can help us learn, that your spirit can help us apply these truths to our lives. Heavenly Father, we come with our own baggage. We come with our own lives and our own order of things. And Lord, we just pray to you that you can shine a light on us. Help us to find those areas that are stopping us from fully serving you. That's our desire, Lord. That's our wish. That's our, 
our, uh, what we want, Lord, from you is to, is to serve. So please, Lord, be with us as we go into this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.